I wish I could read as, as many books as possible. Share this broadcast with your friends. <laughs> Why? Because we are reading here every single day and we read at least one different book every single day. So if you're listening with us and you're listening along, then you are in fact reading. Uh, as somebody recently said that, you know, we can acquire knowledge through more than the physical book, right? There are other ways that we can acquire knowledge. There are other ways that we can acquire intelligence, but this is one of the most basic ones. And so if you are a person that is neurodivergent, I am neurodivergent, um, but it does not, my neurodivergence doesn't stop me from reading a physical book like some other people. And I totally get that, which is why <laughs> I'm reading aloud for the people who are like, you know what? I try to pick up a book, but I'm dyslexic and it looks like noodle soup when I look at these letters. My brain is not translating this as visibly readable for me. There are some people who experience that. I know that happens with me and uh, numbers sometimes. So I have to do a couple more steps when I'm doing mathematics um, than other people do. So I get that part, which again is why I'm reading out loud. So if you're the person who says, listen, I've tried to sit down. I've tried to read a book. Um, I can't finish a book all the way through. I can't get all the way through it. We have been reading through these books. Okay. So. We are now on, just wanted to throw that out there. I am your living audiobook for these sessions. We are on chapter five, connecting the dots. Again, what happened to you? Conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing by Dr. Bruce D. Perry in conversation with Oprah Winfrey. Oprah is listening. This is really a book that's a conversation. And Oprah is learning about the neuroscience of trauma. She's learning about resilience and how we can um, recover and heal from the things that have happened to us. And this doctor is explaining it to her through the lens of neuroscience. Okay. So it is not Oprah giving her professional medical opinion, <laughs> as some people think when they hear when they hear Oprah Winfrey on this book. It's actually the doctor who is giving his professional opinion and Oprah is sharing her experiences and he's sort of helping her to put some things in context. And also he's uh, sharing case studies inside of this book. All right. So I just want people to understand uh, the context in which we are reading. We are not saying that Oprah is an expert in trauma. All right, but she has experienced it. So we're starting off again, connecting the dots, and Oprah is going to share one of her personal experiences, and then the conversation is going to take off from there. She says, For much of my adult life, being alone at night was extremely stressful. Even in Chicago, where I lived on the 57th floor of a building staffed with security and a doorman, I didn't feel safe. In fact, one night after living in the condo a few years, I felt so acutely frightened that I convinced myself I had to leave because something bad was going to happen to me if I didn't. 
I actually got up from bed, left my home, and checked into the hotel next door. I felt safer in the hotel because no one would know I was there. My fears didn't make sense to me, and they were getting worse. I knew I needed to figure out what was going on, but I had no idea where to begin. At the same time, Chicago was reeling from one of the country's first ever school shootings. On May 20, 1988, Lori Dan walked into a second grade classroom in the North Shore suburb of Winnetka and opened fire. Six children were shot and eight-year-old Nick Corwin was killed. In the aftermath of the shooting, angry and anguished parents were calling for the school's doors to be locked and chained and manned by security guards. One day, I read an article that explained why the school principal refused to implement these changes. He said, chaining the doors would send a message to the children that they were unsafe. Good morning, everyone. All of a sudden, out of the blue, while reading this article, I started to cry. Not just for the children and their families who were picking up the pieces after a tragedy, but because the words of the principal who refused to barricade the children triggered a long-forgotten memory of an event I hadn't thought of in years. Growing up in Mississippi, I always slept with my grandmother. My grandfather, who had dementia, slept in the side room. One night, I was suddenly awakened to see my grandfather standing over the bed. Even before I opened my eyes, I could sense my grandmother's fear. I could feel her heightened awareness as she slowly repeated, earliest, earliest, get back to bed, earliest, get back to bed. He wouldn't go. He was trying to choke her, fighting to get his hands around her neck. When she finally managed to push him off her and run to the door, she cried out for one of our neighbors and we called cousin, who we called Cousin Henry, who lived down the road. Henry, Henry, Henry. Henry was blind, but without hesitation, he came in the middle of the night to help my grandmother put my grandfather back in his bedroom. My grandmother then wedged a chair under the doorknob of her bedroom door and found some cans to put around the bed. The next morning, she tied those cans together and hung them from the door. And every night for the rest of my days living with my grandmother, the cans were on the, on the door and the chair was up under the knob. I would try to sleep while listening to make sure the cans didn't move. Again, you don't know other people's story and why they do what they do. <clears throat> Somebody keeps saying, why, oh, why won't Miss Winfrey take Mr. Stedman and Wedded Bliss. I'm going to just let that sizzle, let that sizzle, which I found out, by the way, I'm related to Stedman <laughs> by marriage. Very interesting story. When I read about the principal who would not put chains on the doors, I had an aha. The cans on my grandmother's door sent the very message the principal was trying to avoid sending to his young students. The chains would perhaps have protected the children, but in the principal's mind, it was more damaging to constantly remind them of a traumatic incident and make them believe they were unsafe. I finally connected the dots as to why I was afraid to be home alone at night. The attack on my grandmother while we were asleep and at our most vulnerable had been traumatizing. Obviously, it left deep emotional scars. Even as an adult, as I tried to sleep, my mind was conditioned to stay in a constant state of arousal, 
prepared for attack. Making that connection, finally understanding both the cause and effect of my sleep trouble was a game changer for me. Though I could still feel myself reacting to the deep stress points born in my grandmother's bedroom all those years ago, I now have the tools and understanding to step back, observe what I'm feeling, and choose how to move through the fear. As you consider your individual response patterns, know that by putting a small moment of space between the immediate feeling and your instinctive reaction, you are allowing yourself to stay present and ultimately regain control. So Oprah asked the question, is it possible for a heightened sense of fear to be inherited? Dr. Perry says, well, let me expand the question. I should have guessed. You're not going to just answer yes or no, are you? You're going to make this more complicated, right? Yes, yes I am. <laughs> because you're getting at what happened to us and that influences who we become in complicated ways. We absorb things from previous generations and pass them on to the next generation. Our genes, family, community, society, and culture are all part of this. So your question about fear being inherited is central to understanding trauma, especially historical trauma. Let's use a fear of dogs as an example here. This fear may be based in personal experience, being bitten by a dog as a child, for example. The child's brain created associations between dogs and threats, similar to what happened with Mr. Roseman from his combat army experiences. But we know that some people have an intense fear of dogs, despite no real personal history with them. Where does that come from? I would suggest that this fear may come from transgenerational transmission. <laughs> and we're going to get to that in just a moment. Imagine, for example, growing up in a world where dogs were trained to hunt, track, and attack humans. Now, my husband has actually taught on this part that he's getting ready to share. Hounds for the enslaved have been described by Tyler Perry, a leading Tyler Perry, P-A-R-R-Y, not Tyler Perry, the actor. OK, Tyler Perry, a leading scholar on colonization and slavery as the most effective and terrifying tool for disciplining black bodies and dominating their space. So you have to think about generations, generations of enslaved black people were hunted down by dog hounds, sniffed at, all of that fear, hiding, being chased, um, having to throw off the scent. Sometimes having to wait for specific times to escape because they would, from, from my understanding, they said, you know, in some of the things that I've been reading, they said that sometimes the best time to, to escape would be after a funeral because they could take the scent of that uh, deceased person and utilize that to cover their own scent as they escaped. So this was a tool that was used to discipline black bodies, dominate their space, keep them in fear, terrorize them. And with transgenerational transmission, 
there's a possibility that that fear, that trapped fear, has been transferred from generation to generation to generation to generation. So even if you don't even live in a neighborhood with dogs, <laughs> if you're African-American and your child is afraid of dogs, there could be some of this, what he calls transgenerational transmission or historical trauma that's been passed down, also known as epigenetics. Generations later, dogs were used the same way to intimidate and terrorize civil rights marchers in the South. So it's not just even what happened during enslavement, but that continued. And then what do we have in the present day? Somebody type it down there. What's still used in the present day to enforce certain things legally with law? What do they use when they're trying to sniff out and look for illegal substances? What do they use when they come through some schools in certain areas looking for illegal substances and searching lockers? What do they use? Reinforcing a transgenerational fear of dogs for many. If you remember our conversations about emotional contagion, it is not hard to imagine a child feeling fear around a dog when their parent holds their hand harder or hurries to cross the street to avoid someone walking their dog. The fear of the grandparent becomes the fear of the parent, which becomes the fear of the child. Law enforcement agencies, originally enslaved patrols, still use canines. So there's not, there's not even really been a break from this transgeneral transmission of using dogs to instill fear. Understanding what we inherit and how we inherit is necessary for the insight required to make the intentional change. Change at the individual level, such as healing after trauma, and change at the cultural level, such as identifying and changing destructive policies that embed racism. Oprah says, over the years, I've had conversations with the author and spiritual teacher, Ayana Van Zant about how in so many ways we are a product of our ancestors. Ayanla says, every family has patterns and pathologies of thought, belief, and behavior that are passed on from one generation to another in the same way that a physical characteristic is passed on. And even though we like to celebrate the strengths and successes of those who came before us, Many of these conscious and unconscious characteristics are powerful and productive. Others are not. So I'm curious to know what science says from a biological perspective. Can certain psychological traits, emotional characteristics, and behavior patterns be passed down from one family member to another over long spans of time? Absolutely. Generation after generation, Dr. Perry begins. And there are multiple pathways we use to pass down these characteristics, which we're going to look at in a moment. Take your question about fear, for example. Strictly speaking, when you ask if we inherit a sense of fear, you're asking if this trait is encoded in our genetics and passed to us from our parents. 
And the answer to that is a bit fuzzy. But if we ask a slightly different question, is fear transmissible from generation to generation? Can the fearfulness of a parent be transmitted to the child? The answer is an emphatic yes. So guess what, parents? All those 365 times that Jesus says, fear not. You got to get that embedded into you. Because you don't want to transmit fear to your child, right? At our core, as we've said, we are relational beings and social creatures. And because of that, we are neurobiologically tuned in to other people. Part of our brain is continually monitoring others around us. We're trying to understand other people's intentions and feelings. This is part of our making sense of the world and also part of our keeping ourselves safe. We are sensing and absorbing the emotions of those around us. This is particularly true when it comes to the people we spend most time with and are most dependent upon. Children especially are very contagious to the emotions of the people around them. Think of you and your grandmother in the story you shared. You felt fear. Her fear was passed to you. You caught that fear and carried it into your generation. Yes, I could feel her fear, and she was a strong woman who was in charge of the house. This was an unusual response for her, so I knew that it was a dangerous situation, and I believe it changed me on a cellular level. When I think about the African-American community, Oprah says, I see how trauma can trace back for generations all the way back to enslavement. Hundreds of years of internalizing the trauma of racism, segregation, brutality, fear, and the dismantling of the nuclear family, all of it replicated and repeated over and over at the micro level of the individual and eventually seen and felt at the macro level of society. That's why the protests of 2020 were so powerful. The individual at the micro level and society at the macro level had both reached an apex of pain. So let's talk about really quickly as he lays out here the mechanisms of transgenerational transmission. These are ways that what has happened to us can be passed down to our generations. So of course you have genetic, right? Those are the things that are encoded in your DNA. No two people have the same strands of DNA. However, there are some things on, you know, your parent strands that pass down to the children. Um, we may get back to this book, but we were doing a lot of reading um, in one of our previous seasons on genetics, right? We had a whole we were talking about the whole structure of the cell and all of that. And so we may bring that book back again. So genetic DNA, things that were in your DNA that were passed down to your children. Then you have epigenetic. Epigenetic. This is the modification and control of a gene expression. These are the things that get the trauma that gets passed down through generation. Then there is intrauterine. This can be stress from the mother, what happens to the mother happening to the child. Then it can also be environmental toxins underneath this. 
Then there is other things such as alcohol, drugs, substances. Then there is the perinatal experience, bonding and attachment. This is what is shaping the primary regulatory core of your child. Then you have postnatal. This can be family mediated, things like values, languages, beliefs. That's how we can pass things down generationally. And then there is also education. How are we taught? What kinds of schools are we involved in? Community. What is happening in our community? The kind of community we're raised in. Um, this can be, I would also say community in terms of what activities is your child involved in, right? We have some children that get things passed down through maybe a sports community. They may be involved in something like Pop Warner or Little League that plays into things that get passed down to them about what's important, right? And then there is culture mediated things. There is a conversation happening right now about what is black culture, right? And there is a conservative person who is going around saying that she does not want to be attached to black culture. But when she says she doesn't want to be attached to black culture, she is equating black culture to what I call ghetto. <laughs> so, if that is your only expression or if that is your only idea of what black culture is, then yeah, I mean, I could see why you would have a problem with that, but I don't see that as black culture. I see that as ghetto. Ghettos are created environments. Ghetto is a spirit and anybody can wear it and put it on regardless of the ethnicity so um i would say people pass on that as an environmental thing more so than a cultural thing it's an environment that has created that yields certain vices and things that happen okay so <laughs> you can be white ghetto you can be black ghetto you can be asian ghetto you can be Indian ghetto. <laughs> you can be Irish ghetto. You can be Italian ghetto. Ghetto is an environment that yields certain negative traits and behaviors. Ghetto didn't come from black people. It was an experiment that was first tried on the Ashkenazim. Notice I didn't say Jew. I said Ashkenazim. All right. So it was tried on them first. They were walled in. They were starved out. Their, um, you know, their resources were being taken from them. People were being taken from their communities and neighborhoods and rounded up. Until there was this one night where the people said, we're not going to take it anymore. And lots of people rebelled. It was almost kind of like a last stand against being exterminated. They rebelled. Lots of them died and the ones that, um, you know, made it out of that, they were rounded up and everything in their, in their little homes of what they had left was taken and distributed amongst the people who had rounded them up. So ghetto 
is a spirit and an environment. But again, people would tend to try to associate that with black people and just say, oh, this is our culture. Don't ever let somebody assign something to you and your culture that you know is not culture. It's not culture. It's the result of horrible systems put in place. That is not culture. That's environment and the, re- and the result of what happens in that kind of constructed, strategically depriving environment. Let us continue. Dr. Perry says this, and I would say that if we better understand how this pain, this trauma is passed from generation to generation, we have a better chance of intentionally and effectively stopping it. This comes back to transmissibility, emotional contagion. The word transmissible is used to describe the ability of a trait or skill or belief to be passed from one person to another. When children raised in a household that speaks only Spanish grow up and speak Spanish, they didn't inherit Spanish. The capacity to make associations between sound and image is primarily genetic. But specific ways we turn that genetic capacity into a language are not. There are no genes for Chinese or English or Spanish. But language is transmissible. Early in life, the language-related systems in our brain's cortex are so sponge-like that they change when we interact with people in ways that involve speech. So this is one of the reasons why if people want their children to be Um, bilingual they might put them in language programs at a very very early age two three okay if people want their children to be bilingual they might speak the um the the language of their ethnicity on a consistent basis around their children because they want their children to know that language outside of the english language for example if you're here in the united states so early in life language related systems again because of the brain's cortex being very sponge like it can change when we interact with people in ways that involve speech by speaking with the baby we change their brain this is why we don't do gaga goo goo with babies we talk to them in english or spanish or chinese well, Mandarin or Patois or French because it is language and you want the child to pick up languages and not have their first words be gaga goo goo, (laughs) okay? So this allows them to learn their language, their family's language, their culture's language. And guess what? If you're the if you're the parent with the fiery tongues and your child comes out cussing like a sailor, well guess what? They learned the family's language. I talked about this before about how um I had been kidnapped at one point by my family member and I it was during the time when I was asking God to like help me with my speech. 
and helped me to stop cursing because I was like, whoo, gone. Cursing was definitely a second language for me. Profanity was definitely a second language for me. And I wound up in a um, community for three days. I could not leave. I had no way of getting out. And in that community, there were literally children walking around, maybe one or two years old, still in diapers, and they were cursing like adults, like grown people. (laughs) And I was like in shock, like my mind could not compute, like how is this child Cussing me out like it was a 75-year-old sailor. Like, what? (laughs) And it was at that moment for me that I realized I don't want that. Like, because I saw how shocking it was. But it's like, it's shocking to you because it's a baby. But if it wasn't a baby, it would still be shocking. So that was one of the things that made me say, okay... I need to clean up what I'm saying. I need to clean up what's coming out of my mouth, right? So if you have children, think about it. What is your family's language? Even if it isn't a foreign language, right? What is the language of your family? What are you communicating? What are your words speaking? What are your children hearing? Is it a language of faith? Is it a language of fear? Is it a language of hope? Is it a language of doubt? Is it a language of skepticism? Right? And you'll realize as a parent, this is a sidebar, you'll realize as a parent what your language is because your children will begin to tell you. They will say things like, you know what? You always talking about what we not going to (laughs) do. You know what? I just wish you would believe that what I'm telling you just one time. You know what? You seem like you afraid of everything. I'm not afraid. Are you? (laughs) And sometimes we get mad, right? We get a little upset at children who challenge us on the language that's coming out of our mouths. But really, they are a reflection. They're that temperature sometimes, that thermometer in the room that can help you check what is the language of your home. All right, let's keep going. This same experience dependent process applies to many other traits as well as to values and beliefs. These are not genetically coded. They are learned, absorbed, sometimes modified, and then taught to the next generation by example. So we can teach by example. We may say, hey, I've never come right out and said certain things, but you're teaching by example. They can learn it by intentional instruction. I know some families that I've been around and, you know, they'll be having a conversation with their children and they'll say, we are, for example, we are the Lees. What do we believe in this house? Who are the Lees? What are our characteristics? What are things that we're not going to do? As Lees, How do we treat one another? That is what you would call intentional instruction. And then there are complex traits such as altruism that require genetic superstructure. 
but how we incorporate that into the complex beliefs and practices of say Buddhism or Christianity or Islam is not genetic. There may be genetic elements to being wary or defensive when interacting with someone very different from your family or clan of origin. But racism is a learned set of beliefs about the superiority of a people. These are things that are intentionally instructed to young children. And racism in practice is about power, dominance, and oppression. So that can be a family's language. The language we speak, the beliefs we hold, both good and bad, are passed from generation to generation through experience. And so many aspects of the human experience are invented as opposed to simply springing up from our genetic pool. 10,000 years ago, humankind had a genetic potential to read a book. Yet not one single human on the planet could read. The genetic potential to play the piano existed, yet not one person could play. The genetic potential to dunk a basketball, type a sentence, ride a bicycle, all of that potentially existed, but it all remained unexpressed until a certain point in time. Humankind, more than any other species, can take the accumulated distilled experiences of previous generations and pass these inventions, beliefs, and skills to the next generation. And I love the fact that he said the correct word here. <laughs> because <clears throat> a lot of times people like to say, we are one human, um, we are one human race. When in actuality, we are one human species. With many ethnicities. And many cultures. This is socio-cultural evolution. We learn from our elders and we invent. And we pass what we've learned and invent it to the next generations. And the organ that allows this is the human brain, specifically the cortex. As we've said before, the cortex is the most uniquely human part of our body. And no surprise, it gives rise to the most uniquely human capabilities, speech, language, abstract thinking, reflecting on the past, planning for the future, our hopes, dreams, and a major part of our worldview are mediated by our cortex. Last question, and then I'm going to stop. Oprah asked this question. So, if generations of experiences that contribute to our worldview are negative, how do we deal with that? To start, we need to be aware of the ways in which every aspect of our world can influence us in powerful and often unknown ways. Our media. <laughs> Somebody's been getting beat up just for saying that, but he says it right here. Our media, our institutions and systems, our communities, all are infused with some elements of bias. In so many instances, we pass on the language of superiority, dominance, and oppression in quiet and invisible but powerful ways. Somebody was trying to alert the general public about the quiet and invisible and powerful ways 
that superiority and dominance and oppression is being passed on. And people blew a gasket, did they not? I looked at some of these conversations happening and um, I don't think anybody realized, but in the middle of the night, that person that everybody is attacking right now, in the middle of the night, he started a YouTube channel and he has a broadcast going nonstop right now on that YouTube channel. He's also partnered with, um, what's that guy's name? The one that the Lord keep telling me to look out for. He just said, keep your eye on him. Mr. Musk started a partnership with him. So all night long, he's been he's been airing this broadcast. And if you drop down to the live chat in it, he is, he said, this is a once in a lifetime chance to get wealthy. And he is selling or, or trying to get people to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. And if you buy some from him, he's going to give you double back. That's happening right now. I can tell the media don't know what's happening because I've seen, I went and looked, I've seen no news articles or breaking news of what he's doing right now. They haven't caught on yet. We'll probably see maybe an article come out later this afternoon. But that started last night. He just dropped it in the middle of the night and he's kept it going all night long into the morning. Because I guess that's how he had to do it, right? I looked at some of the conversations that was happening and I said, this is a giraffe trying to have a conversation with an ant about what's happening in the world of a giraffe. Does that make sense? Sometimes you are so far removed from what is happening with the ants that it's hard to tell an ant what's going on with a giraffe. Let's get back to this reading before we, I stop today. The cortex, which mediates reading, writing, math, history, as well as our beliefs and values, is incredibly malleable. We all know that if you experience repetitive instruction that involves looking at letters, sounding out words, and listening to others read... You will ultimately build your own neurological, neurobiological capacity to read. This is why even if you cannot read, listening to this program will help you. We learn to read. By stimulating specific neural networks in pattern repetitive ways, we change the brain. We change the brain. So if you say often enough that... To say that black people are the original Hebrews, if you keep saying enough that that is anti-Semitic speech to declare that truth, if you say it enough times, guess what it will do? It will rewire the brain and then you'll have black people parroting the same lie. That is anti-Semitic. There's a reason why they keep repeating that and saying that it's anti-Semitic. Because they want to rewire your brain to believe that. 
This is an experience-based transmission of a skill from one generation to the next. Teaching a child changes their brain. And with this changed brain, the child can grow up and teach what she has learned to someone in the next generation. So if you're teaching a child that the best they have to offer the world is booty shaking and twerking, then that child will grow up and teach what they have learned to someone in the next generation. There is transgenerational transmission. Something is passed on to the next generation. The same is true of our beliefs, our humane and compassionate beliefs, as well as our hateful or oppressive or dehumanizing beliefs. The very same malleability of the brain, the sponge-like quality that lets infants absorb and learn the language of their parents, also allows children to absorb the beliefs, good and bad, of influential adults, which is why it's important to be aware of who you have your children around. Perfect example. Let me give you an example. Don't nobody get offended, okay? (laughs) If you are a person who says, you know what? I am not really into Greek life. I am not into... What I know about Greek life, I am not into um, the secrecy of Greek life. But all the adults around your child are involved in Greek life. And your child goes to all the Greek events. And you put your child in a youth program that is sponsored and funded by Greeks. Then guess what your child is going to want to be when they get out of high school? Guess what your child is probably going to want to be involved in when they get to college? Why? Because they're absorbing the beliefs of the adults around them. So even though you may be saying out of your mouth one thing, all that they have taken in in their environment, in that transmission, has been the exact opposite of what you said. Just an example, okay? So understanding the way we pass things to the next generation is important. If we want to enrich the transmission of humane, compassionate values, beliefs, and practices, and minimize the transmission of hateful or destructive beliefs, we need to be very mindful of what we're exposing our children to. Are they spending time with people who are different from them? Are they seeing diversity celebrated? Or are they being raised to fear and judge anyone who doesn't think or look or speak like they do? Generational transmissions of bias can be disrupted. We can stop passing hateful, destructive, or false beliefs to the next generation. But to do so, we must be exceedingly intentional about all of the ways we influence our babies, toddlers, and young children. We have to think about the images they see in the magazines we read, the people we welcome into our homes, the way we treat others who look differently from us or believe differently from us. And that is just the very beginning. So many aspects of our world need to shift. But all of these things can influence the transgenerational transmission process. Okay? So...
next time we will finish because Oprah gets an aha moment on connecting the dots. All right. I am done talking. If you would like to join me to respond. All right. Feel free to click the camera and I will bring you on. We've got about a good 15 minutes here. And if you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you for tuning in and sharing with us on today. We hope you will join us again on tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or catch the replay.